I grew up in a Baptist church. I uh, went to a Baptist college, uh, major in religion, took all my minor in religion, all my electives in religion. I wasn't going to go to seminary. Um, then I did go ahead and go to seminary. Went to Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, my theological education, I'm thankful for it, but it's also I'm still trying to recover from it. Um, my undergraduate and uh, master's level was very liberal. It did not build faith. It uh, they basically was based upon a presupposition. Nothing supernatural can happen because if it did, the whole universe would fall apart because you couldn't depend upon the laws of nature. It's, it's, it's called a kind of, it's a scienti- scientism. It's not really science, but, um, and so I was very, it was very liberal. And it took years for me to overcome that. And what kept me from losing my faith as a Christian, because I think at the time, if you wanted to destroy somebody's faith, what you could have done was just send them to college and seminary where I went. And But I, it didn't because I had been healed at 18 years old from a severe uh, car accident. My next, second best friend is right beside me. He was killed in the accident. Uh, I was almost killed. I had massive damage to my face and my back, my spine especially. And uh, um, I was telling Tracy that uh, found out years later, actually just about four years ago, that uh, almost a, well, every, every vertebrate they could see in all the x-rays had an old fracture. He said, what did you do to your back? He said, I had a terrible accident when I was 18 years old. I was healed. That healing kept me from losing my faith because I couldn't buy into all of the uh, philosophy that's behind the, what's called the higher critical method of interpreting Scripture. And really, that's an, a method that involves a presupposition that the supernatural can't happen. Not only it didn't happen, it can't happen. So you have to, if you're a liberal theologian, it's called demythologizing. It's what they said, modern man can't believe in these kinds of things. And we need to strip away the husk of this myth and get to the heart of what's being taught. Now that sounds very, very terrible. But very fundamentalist Christians do the same thing. They don't call it that, but they do the same thing. Um, it's really funny that a liberal, a pastor trained at a liberal seminary and a pastor trained with no seminary but trained under fundamentalism and cessationism, those two pastors who are at the opposite sides theologically who had what's called the modernist fundamentalist controversy in the 1920s, they, and they, you know, almost all the schools were lost to the liberals and that's when the new institutes and new schools started being formed to combat the liberalism. But they combated it with cessationism, which is this view based upon the word cease, that tongues, prophecy, miracles, healings, um, um, ceased with either the death of the apostles or the death of the, of the first disciples of the apostles or when the Bible is canonized. It's, it's, it's multiple ways it's interpreted. Basic means by about 325, there's no more miracles after that. There's a reason for that. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but if you're trained or if you're a member of a church where your pastor, he or she, has been trained in one of these two ways of thought, there will be a view of discipleship that's very different from New Testament discipleship. For example, New Testament discipleship is Hebraic. It's not Greek. 
Greeks think of discipling by learning and gathering information and processing information and memorizing, for example, memorizing Scripture, knowing where it's at, where it's at and knowing how to deal with Scripture theologically uh, would be more of a Greek way of discipleship. Hebraic way of discipleship is you know the Scripture, but you not only know it, you do it. That's a huge difference. And New Testament discipleship uh, must include the people who are in churches knowing how to pray for the sick, cast out demons, and share the gospel and minister to the poor. That's the heart of it. And as Jesus said to the disciples, uh, not disciples, the Pharisees of his day, you have allowed the com- uh, uh, commandments of God to begin of none effect because of the traditions of man. And we have that in America. Uh, so much of church life is void of this reality of discipleship must include teaching the people to do what Jesus said we were supposed to do. Going all the way back to the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Most churches want to put a period right there. There's no period there. There's a comma. And teaching them who? The ones who believe based upon the preaching. Teaching them, the ones that you've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe or to do it's, it's word observe means not just to know, but to put into practice to do all things whatsoever I have commanded you. At the top of the list of the commandments, if you go back and look at all the commandments Jesus gave his disciples, healing and deliverance is either at the top or near the very top. And so how can we have discipleship if we're not teaching them to do all things whatsoever he commanded the disciples to do, and especially uh, healing and deliverance? So, this, uh, this, this situation was uh, never a part of Catholic theology or Orthodox theology, like the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, the, all of the Orthodox church, up to this day, have liturgies that, uh, for healing. They've always believed that healing did not end. The Catholic church never believed healing ended. The uh, uh, Cessationism is a Protestant phenomena only. And it started with Luther and Calvin. And I don't have time to go into details except to say it, it responded out of a need for authority because as the reformers were trying to, uh, to say we're justified by faith, which, by the way, the Catholic Church recently, a year or two ago, said we agree that we are justified by faith alone and that 16th century argument between Catholics and Protestants is over because the Catholics say, we agree with you. It's by faith alone. That part is, anyway, that part's over. But during that time, the Catholics uh, who were arguing against Luther and, and later Calvin and Zwingli and others would say, we have miracles. Our miracles prove our doctrine." Where yours, And it was in that context of miracles being understood that their purpose was to accredit correct doctrine, which the Catholics believed, and the Protestants did as well. 
But biblically speaking, that's where we all both went wrong. That miracle's primary purpose was not to accredit doctrine. Miracle's primary purpose was to reveal a compassionate God. Miracles and healing were to be part of the good news. The kingdom is coming and was inaugurated in the life, death, and resurrection, ascension of Jesus and pouring out the Spirit because the kingdom is in the Holy Spirit. And so the uh, misunderstanding of the purpose, primary purpose of miracle, even to this day, causes people to believe there, for example, can't be any prophets today, there can't be any uh, apostles today, based upon a scripture that said the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Um, so if there could be prophets and apostles today, then there could be more scripture. And this is what the, the fear has been, which, by the way, that's not true either um, in the way that it's being used. For example, only out of the 84 people is called uh, apostles or either the noun or the verbs, and they were apostled, they were sent out like the 72. Um, only four of them wrote scripture. And almost half the scripture was not written by an apostle. It was written by a non-apostle. Um, and so the Bible itself doesn't teach these bases upon which cessation is based. Um, so the purpose of healing, and that's the uniqueness, as, as uh, Michael Brown says in his book, Israel's Divine Healer. Um, healing in the Old Testament was a stream that became a flood in the New Testament. And it became a flood because Jesus was inaugurating the kingdom. Healing is in the kingdom. And so um, Luther and Calvin felt like we've got to deal with this issue of authority. And so we were just going to say, see, because we believe, they believe, miracles were to attest correct doctrine. When the Catholic Church had developed some doctrines they didn't think was biblical, then those miracles have to be counterfeit miracles, which is the book B.B. Warfield wrote at Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1920s, who was fighting against fundamental, uh, fighting for fundamentalism against liberalism. The irony of it is, in his own hermeneutic that he uses, the way he interprets Scripture, that he uses in his book, um, Counterfeit Miracles, he only gives six pages to Scripture out of hundreds of pages. And most of them is, is kind of like... Uh, uh, it's called the ad in the law. It's called ad hominem argument. Uh, you're arguing against the person. You're trying to discredit the character of the witness whose testimony uh, hurts your case. So you attack the witness, and most of the book is basically that attacks upon the integrity of men who were the people who basically gave us what today we call orthodoxy who worked out the, the nature of Jesus, who uh, stood for the doctrine of the Trinity, who stood against um, Arianism, which was kind of like a, um, kind of like Jehovah's Witness view of, of Jesus in a way. Um, so these were the men who developed and helped fight those fights to develop the, what we consider today the true understanding of the faith. But he was, but they were just people of their age. They didn't understand. They were incredulous, and and uh, so what happened was Warfield, when it came to the scriptures, 
but when it came to the, after the death of the apostles, anything written about the miraculous after the death of the apostles, Warfield approached the, their stories exactly the same way that the liberals did the stories in the scripture time. So what he did was, when it came to scripture, his view of what's possible was one, one system of thought. The miraculous is possible. When it came to, uh, and the liberals were saying, no, it's not because of our view of history and our view of the world is miracles are impossible because they do, the world would fall apart. You, you couldn't have science because you couldn't trust the laws of nature. And, and so when, and Warfield was very much against these guys. So when it came up to after the Bible time, after the canonization of scripture, Warfield, when it came to attacking people in the Middle Ages and later who had stories, he used the exact same arguments the liberals did against the Scripture. He actually had two very different ways of approaching which what called historical method. He violated his own biblical method of interpreting Scripture when it came to these passages because he ignored the ones that proved and taught that these things were to continue until Jesus came back. By the way, it's really funny. One of the most famous texts uh, by cessationists is in the 13th chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians. And when, when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. As for tongues, as for seas, as for knowledge, you know, stop and all that. Uh, what's really interesting, the first heresy, that was, I agree with Wesley, probably wasn't a heresy. It was bad, bad eschatology, but it shouldn't, and, and, and uh, very much legalistic in some ways, but it really shouldn't have been considered a heresy. Uh, it's called Montanism. And as a result of this, prophecy has, was feared by the church because um, it was a revival of the gifts of the Spirit. And uh, Montanus was a prophet. He's, and he had two prophets, Priscilla and, and um, uh, well, it's not Aquila, Priscilla, and I forgot the other one's name. But anyway, um, and they said, we are the last prophets. There will be no more prophecy after us. Prophecy is going to end with us. Now, that sounds like a form of cessationism, but it really wasn't because they also taught that Jesus is coming back at this day, and I mean in this year. He's going to come to this city in Phrygia, and, and, and time is going to end as we know it. The second coming of Jesus is going to happen. Now, if that makes you heresy, then so is Hal Lindsey and make him a heretic. And uh, Salem Carbon and a whole bunch of those guys. That, and uh, 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. That book was on sale in 1989. <laughs> and there's, I mean, what, throughout the history there's been, and matter of fact, one of the things I've learned, and I actually have uh, 12 courses, three, four in each track on healing, inner healing, phys uh, physical healing, inner healing, deliverance, and uh, something I created called Christian Healing Certification Program. It's now being taught at some seminaries. Uh, Regent Divinity School, I'll start teaching there as an adjunct professor this fall. And also United Theological Seminary, United Methodist Seminary, where the physical healing part is being picked up. But also just developed one on prophecy that's six courses, eight weeks each. And one of the things on, it's called uh, Christian Prophetic Certification Program. And I developed them because people could get reinsurance 
reimbursed for insurance for Reiki and therapeutic touch, but they couldn't Christian prayer because they said, you guys haven't, these people have gone through a certification process. You don't have one. So I developed one, put it up against anything they've got. And, and then if they pay for therapeutic touch or Reiki and won't pay a pr- Christian practitioner who's been certified, then it gives us ground to sue the insurance companies for discrimination on a religious basis. We just we just want to make it we we want to make it a flat. We don't want to have an advantage necessarily, but we don't want to be disadvantaged either. Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. I'm just saying I've given a lot of given a lot of thought to some of this stuff. But I found out that the main reason the church is fearful of prophecy is because of basically two major mistakes that's been made, and w- the most important one is um, declaring when Jesus was coming back. And it's happened a lot. It's caused major problems. So, but anyway, so the early church, how did they combat Montanism? Uh, and by the way, the, the most famous theologian became a Montanist, Tertullian. So it couldn't have been terrible. And Wesley thought it wasn't a heresy. He thought it was a, an attempt at renewing the church, but it, it got off in its eschatology. Also got off in off in its... Uh, the other thing is that sometimes are too strict, too legalistic, very, very uh, aesthetic in the sense of um, uh, denying your body, denying, you know, things like that. Um, but anyway, here's the way the church dealt with that teaching that there's no more prophecy after us because it's going to end. But now what they didn't understand is it's going to end because time's going to end. So they weren't saying it was going to end because the canon was screwed. Uh, because the canon hadn't been totally done yet. Um, Here's what the church did to respond to it. They took the text that's used today to prove cessationism, and they took that text to disprove the first attempt at what they thought was cessationism. They said, this is wrong teaching, because based upon 1 Corinthians 13, 8, I believe it is, it said, these things continue until the perfect comes, the perfect comes is talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. So prophecy has, and all the gifts have to continue until Jesus comes back. So it's really interesting from church history to realize that what was used in the 19th century and the 16th century to prove secessionism, the main text was used in the 2nd or 3rd century to disprove cessationism, the very same text. The other thing is that most, not just Pentecostal charismatic, but most all major um, New Testament scholars that are evangelical admit that that is not talking about the canonization of Scripture. It's talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. When the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. So, anyway... I wasn't, um, that wasn't really what I was supposed to talk about. I'm not, I haven't started the message yet. Um, I'm, I'm just just kind of rambling a little bit. I want to start out with the New Testament. I want to start out uh, this morning with the New Testament. And then this afternoon, I want to deal with revival. And uh, um, matter of fact, when I first started traveling, uh, the Lord spoke to me in, internally. I've never heard an audible voice, but several times I've had very strong impressions. And he said, uh, I'm going to give you a doctorate in revival. It won't be one like the 
seminaries give. I'm going to send you all over the world. I'm going to give you the chance to meet some of the pastors of the largest churches in the world and meet many of the most famous evangelists of the world. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to interview them and talk with them. And I'm going to teach you and train you about revival. And then you can come back and teach in the United States what you learned over all over the world. So I feel like we're coming into that season right now. So uh, I want to I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. And in the afternoon sessions, if there's time, there, sometime during these two days together, we will have like question answer time. So we can write your questions down so you don't forget them. And then we'll have a question answer time and, um, and deal with them. Um, in the 19th chapter of Acts, it's the uh, st- story of the greatest revival recorded in the New Testament. Um, the, the revival that happened in Ephesus. And what's really interesting, when Paul first began his missionary journey, he wanted to go into Asia. Uh, when he's talking about Asia at that time, he's talking about Turkey, modern-day Turkey, which is where Ephesus is. Uh, a couple of years ago, my executive director and I, we flew all the way to Izmir, um, Turkey, and then drove several hours down on the Black Sea, I guess it is, there. And um, while we were there, uh, we went to Ephesus. And while we were in Eph- Ephesus, we got to go to John, uh, the Apostle John's grave and also saw a church f- foundations, ruins, that would go back in, into probably the 4th century and walked into the baptistry. There was no bab- baptismal fount. There was a baptistry uh, that they baptized still by immersion at that time in the early church. And... Uh, it's amazing spending a little bit of time in Ephesus, but the reason we went was there were a hundred Iraqi pastors sneaking out to come to this meeting. And there were, uh, m- most of the key leaders in Turkey were going to be there. And they asked us to come to pray for impartation for these pastors. So we, um, we flew. Uh, all the ex- we, we, we absorbed all of our own expenses uh, we, did, we, we received nothing just so we could go and lay hands on. Actually, it was about 200 people uh, in the first night, and then the, then the Iraqis were at another place uh, really close by for about 100 uh, the next day. Um, it was all in one day, actually. And then flew home. Uh, what was really interesting is just the hunger and the willingness to, to sacrifice on the part of the people there uh, who were willing to lay down their lives for the gospel. And we just thought it was just a privilege to be able to go and, and minister uh, to them. So uh, when Paul first started to go into Ephesus, he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would not let him go into, I mean, Asia, which would be modern-day Turkey at the time. And so he ended up going to uh, Europe. Uh, only later... After he had a was ready, God had to get him ready. God had to put him through his his seminary. Only after he had been in prison many times and shipwrecked and left in the ocean and cold and naked and beaten and stoned and left for dead and only after that really good education that God had given him did he feel like now he's ready to go into the most demonized city. Uh, Peter Wagner called Ephesus one of the most demonized cities of the ancient world. With a great temple, Diana, the Ephesians, 
uh, was there. Many other temples were there um, to other many, many other gods. And it was a very demonized city. And so when Paul goes, it's in the darkest, hardest, most difficult place that there was is where the Apostle Paul had his greatest revival. Now, that should be encouraging because lots of places where I go around the world, people say, you don't understand how hard it is here. This has to be the hardest place in the world to, to grow a church. It is so hard. There's so much demonic stuff here, and they're, they're telling me about how difficult it is. And I said, wow, man, you ought to be encouraged. He said, can you hear what I said? Yeah. You said this is the most difficult place, one of the darkest places in the world to, to grow a church. I heard you. Did you hear what I said? You should be encouraged. And he said, I don't understand. I said, that's where Paul had his greatest revival. Whereas the greatest darkness was where there's the greatest power and the greatest light. You ought to be encouraged. So having said that, I want to talk to you now about seven signs, seven indicators of New Testament revival. Now the adjective New Testament there, New Testament revival, is important because I am saying, I, I am saying that you can have revival without some of these signs. There's been great revivals without some of these signs. All I'm saying is they were still falling short of New Testament revival. And if you want to have New Testament revival, then all these signs, all these indicators should be present. It should be our goal that every one of these indicators would be present uh, because uh, it doesn't invalidate like if we said that then it would it would invalidate the Billy, Billy Graham's ministry and obviously I don't believe in that but I do believe that Billy Graham was falling short of New Testament um, revival as a matter of fact next May I'm going to do a crusade the first time I've done one United States I've done them in India I've done them in um, Brazil, I've done them in Argentina, but I've never done a crusade in the United States. And so after uh, 21 years of travel, uh, I want to start in Dayton, Ohio, uh, next May, which is one of the most broken cities in the United States with the greatest poverty and one of the worst places to live as far as, you know, uh, it's been rated that. And we're going to go there and do a Love Dayton crusade. And for years, I've been wanting to do it. I've been talking about it for years probably uh, at least 19 years, I've been saying what we need is to take the best of Billy Graham and the best of Omar Cabrera, which was a healing evangelist, and the best of Carlos Anacondia, which dealt with dealing with the demonic stuff too, and weave these three traditions together into a, a form of doing evangelism that involves all three, where there's people... You know, getting your friends to come, getting the lost to come and, and uh, praying for them for so many months before we ever get there. But also doing healing while we're there and also coming against the uh, demonic in the ones who just, um, who are present in the audience. And what we call power evangelism. And I'll talk about that this afternoon, what power evangelism is and talk about uh, revival. And I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit for healing and miracles is strategic to having New Testament revival. And the power of the Holy Spirit for 
deep conviction and conversion and, and just manifestations because the power is very common to all major moves of God in our history in America. And we'll be going, I'm going to be looking at the relationship between the power and revival in American church history um, this afternoon. Um, so now, let's start. My, by the way, I always tell people, if you don't, usually I teach six times a day, four days is a normal healing school. This is two days, and it's less teaching every day. So I can't give you everything I want. But usually I, when I start out, I say, you should be glad I got married, married my wife. Because if I hadn't married my wife, half of you would be really, really sick about being here and listening to me. Because I would be your worst nightmare. Because until I married her, I thought everybody was like me in the way they thought. <laughs> and I think in pictures. I think in story. My own associate one time after we'd been, we'd been with me for about over a decade, he said, do you know you can't answer a question without a story? I said, no, I didn't know that. He said, well, you, you can't. Every time somebody asks you a question, you'll answer it with a story. I said, I didn't know I did that. He said, you do. <laughs> so we pastors are sometimes insecure, and we, want, we like to be affirmed. And so, but we don't want to be, look so wounded and, and, and uh, immature that we uh, ask, just blatantly ask, please give me a compliment. Did you like my teaching? You know, we don't want to do that. So we learn how to fish for compliments. Like, uh, uh, what did you think of the sermon today? That's fishing for a compliment. And so uh, when, I, when I first got married, uh, my wife and I are complete opposites almost in everything what we like to eat, where we like to go, the way we, almost everything, we are opposites. And the way we think, we're opposites. It makes for uh, a lot of arguments, but it's never boring. Um, and so, freshly married and coming home first few weeks from church, I only did it two or three times, and I quit after that. I couldn't handle the rejection. And so, I said, what did you think of the sermon today, hon? And she said, what was your point? I said, what do you mean, what was my point? Well, what were you trying to say? I said, what do you mean, what was I trying to say? I, don't you, I told you what, I said what I wanted to say. Didn't it make, what? I need some takeaway points. What do you mean, takeaway points? I need, you need to tell me what you want to say. You need to. I, I need some structure. I need to know what you were trying. I need a point. I need some points. I said, you've got to be kidding me. She said, no, I need them. I said, you're serious? Yeah. I said, well, well that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Why do you need a point? The stories were the points. If you got the stories, you got the points. No, no. I need to know what the point of that story was. I said, well, that doesn't make sense because if, you, if somebody gets up and gives points, I can't, I, by the time I get to the car, I will have forgotten the points. If there's no stories, who can remember a point without a story? I mean, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. She says, I can't. <laughs> so after two or three times, I quit asking her what she thought of my sermons, but I also began to put some points in. <laughs> so you should be glad I'm married because I want to give you seven indicators of New Testament revival. And I'm actually going to give you the outline for some of you who are pastors. You, this this um, 
this sermon will preach, you know. It really will. It's biblical, and it's right out of the Scripture. And um, so I want to give you the outline, then we'll come back and just walk through it again. And um, actually, this is one of my sermons with the least amount of stories. So, but for those of you who are like me, don't worry. You're going to get your <laughs> fill of stories. Uh, the very first indicator of New Testament revival will be salvations. And that's Acts 19, 1 through 5. A second indicator of New Testament revival is impartation. And that's verse 6. A third indication of New Testament revival is teaching but not just any kind of teaching. It's teaching on the kingdom of God. And that's verse 8. A fourth characteristic of New Testament revival is power, especially for healing and deliverance. And that's verses 11 and 12. A fifth characteristic of New Testament revival is fear or respect for God, his name, his presence. Fear. He's not taken lightly. The sense of awesomeness, but it's fear. In even in many of the great revivals of American history, there was a fear that come on the community over their lostness, the undoneness of their souls, a, uh, a fear of not having eternal life. Number six characteristic, a sixth characteristic of New Testament revival is deeper repentance on the part of those that's already saved. And that's verses 18 and 19. Number five, verse 17. And then the seventh characteristic or sign or indication of New Testament revival is growth. Uh, verse 10 and verse 20. Um, a few days ago, I was in Brazil. I was meeting one of the great apostolic leaders in Brazil. It's nice. You can use the adjective, but if you say the noun, people don't like it. So I was meeting one of the greatest apostolic leaders. Another way of saying it, I met an apostle. But you, a lot of people freak out if you say that, so you, I use the verbal form or the adjective, I mean, apostolic leader. His name is, he's American, born in Brazil to missionary parents. His brother died uh, in a plane crash trying to reach the 100,000 villages in the Amazon basin. And... Um, his, his, his saying is this, healthy sheep always reproduce. You cannot have a healthy church that's not growing. And if you produce healthy disciples through the, and they have a one-on-one -on -one discipleship program that's part of their cell system, which is the best cell system in the world for, one, for discipleship. It was determined in Seoul, Korea at Cho's church. And uh, it's one of the one of the it's one of the cell systems I've seen that doesn't involve over heavy handedness and control and 
the problems that we experience in the shepherding movement that is experienced now in one of the cell systems of Brazil. I, when I first saw it, I said, this, this is looking good, but it's going to implode one day. There's too much control. Um, this is not this guy. But, but the point I want to make was he just believes, I think he's right. He has a church of 65,000 people that in, in a city of a quarter of a million. Um, they meet every week, 65,000 in cells every week. He left there nine years ago to move from Santa Dame near the equator uh, in Brazil, up uh, top of Brazil, uh, to Fortaleza uh, nine years ago. He now has 9,000 people in his church. He started 100 other churches in that state. And they have no real idea how many people they have in the hundreds of churches they've started. But his view is healthy Christians grow in a sense of reproduce. And if there's no reproduction, it's because something's wrong in their health. The discipleship process is not successful because they are not being discipled into healthy Christians who reproduce. They have no evangelism programs at all. But while I was there, they baptized that one Sunday, 702 people and had 248 people join the church outside of baptism. So they grew by almost, there's almost 1,000 people that Sunday. I've been in another American that's a missionary who spent his life in Brazil. They have encounters every two weeks because they can't wait a month because they have so many new Christians coming that uh, they, can't, they can only go two weeks before they got to do an encounter where they take people and make sure they get baptized in spirit, go through inner healing, and uh, um, learn about the vision of the church. And um, if they need deliverance, get delivered. Um, but there, again, it's this view. Healthy Christians reproduce. So let's look at the text now, starting in verse 1 through 5. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked then, What baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, Pentecostals teach these were already disciples of Jesus. And so this experience of what's going to happen when Paul lays hands on him in a moment uh, was a subsequent experience to their conversion. Um, and I, I actually disagree with that. The reason why is, number one, the early preaching very much focused on the Holy Spirit. All the early sermons have a strong emphasis on Holy Spirit. The fact that they had not even heard there is a Holy Spirit means, to me, they haven't heard the gospel yet. Uh, and so these are... The uh, disciples, yes, but they are disciples of John the Baptist. And Luke will use the term disciple, not just for the disciples of Jesus. He actually will use the term for disciples of John the Baptist. And so uh, for these reasons, I don't believe these uh, men 
were already saved. I believe that they were not yet. They hadn't heard the gospel yet. So um, it's really interesting. Uh, evangelicals, um, every English translation written after uh, 1900 um, says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The King James, written well before 1900, says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? I was curious about that. And I realized, from because I love church history, is that uh, Pentecostalism began at the beginning of the 20th century. So I wrote to the Baptist Seminary and said, I'd like for you, this is, you know, uh, when a year, many years ago, about 30 years ago, I wrote to him and said, I'd like for you, because that's where I graduated from, to the seminary and went and I can get that kind of service. I said, would you send me a copy of the every English translation of Acts 19 that you have? So they did. Here's what I found out. Every English translation before 1900 says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And every English translation after 1900 says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, why? And the NIV has a little footnote and it says, or after. It's one of the few translations um, that has that possibility, or after. This is where experience in the church is coloring translation. Now, by translating the Greek, it could be translated either way. It really can. Either way is a legitimate translation. But all the translators translated it, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed until Pentecostalism came. Why? Because Pentecostals taught that you do not receive all that there is that God has of the Holy Spirit to give you and when you do, that's what they call it the baptism of the Spirit, had to be subsequent. It's one of the doctrines of Pentecostal, one of the classical pillars of Pentecostalism that separated it from evangelicalism was two. One was the necessary evidence, initial evidence of speaking in tongues, and the second one was the doctrine of subsequence. You don't get everything at conversion that uh, there is a post-conversion experience that of the Holy Spirit, which is rooted in Wesleyanism and... Um, because John Wesley taught uh, the first 20 years of his ministry. He called it sanctification or being perfected in love, many, several terms. But the last 20 years of Wesley's ministry, he called this experience being baptized in the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's, it was his term. He got it from a young guy. He's, he's going to turn the Methodist denomination over to it once he uh, established it, called John Fletcher. But Fletcher died of uh, ministering to people in his congregation who had uh, a fever had hit the congregation. He is asthmatic to start with. And so he died and he, Wesley wasn't able to turn it over to him, but he was influenced in this language. The, John Wesley is considered to be the grandfather of all Pentecostals and all charismatics because the, the whole subsequent teaching about something post-conversion uh, in addition to what you received at conversion it goes back uh, in Protestant basically, uh, uh, to Wesley. So, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed or have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Either way would be fine. I just want you to be aware of uh, there's times that translators of Greek are influenced by cultural doctrinal wars. 
Uh, and sometimes it's, they're just uh, influenced by um, a lack of experience that causes them to, to not have any understanding of how a certain way of translating a text could be uh, translated. For example, Mark eleven twenty two is not Jesus quoting Kenneth Hagin. And it starts out, in most English translations, starts out, have faith in God. But F.F. F. Bosworth and um, others, commentators, uh, particularly Dr. Charles Price, who had his law degree from Oxford, who was a very liberal Methodist until he was healed in one of Amos McPherson's meetings, and then he became, he developed his own very powerful healing ministry. And he has a book called The Real Faith, and he talks about how that that verse should, he believes, and I agree with him, should be translated, have faith of God instead of have faith in God. Now, the reason why I believe it, it because he says, because if you do, you can speak to this mountain, it'll be uprooted and moved into the sea. You do not doubt and believe in your heart what you say is going to happen. You know, you, But it's talking about, and, and this is a very fa famous passage in the Word of Faith and Faith Cure movements. And the Faith Cure movements from 1875 to 1900 is the most controversial movement in the 19th century. Um, and uh, uh, it was led, this is, by the way, where healing was not developed by Pentecostals. The doctrine of healing within Protestants was not, read, was not discovered by Pentecostals. 25 years before Pentecostalism happened, it was already happening, and it was by uh, people who were doctrinally should have been cessationists. A.B. Simpson, a Presbyterian, A.J. Gordon, a Baptist, uh, Andrew Murray, a Dutch Reformed. These are all Reformed that were trained by, under Calvinism, which believed that cessationism, these things, were not today. Uh, but yet they all rejected it, and these were uh, great biblical scholars, Gordon, Gordon's Conway um, Seminary is named after him. And what's really interesting, most people don't know this, but uh, E.W. Kenyon had a college that merged with Gordon's, Gordon's College. Uh, so in the roots of Gordon, Conway, uh, Gordon Seminary, you've got a little bit of uh, Kenyon influence, um, though they probably wouldn't admit it. Um, so you have these great men of God who are rediscovering the healing is for today. And by the way, B.B. Warfield in his book spent more time arguing against the Baptist Gordon than anybody uh, in the whole book because Gordon had written this great book about why healing is still for today. So in this passage, I don't believe they were saved yet, but not, for the, not because of the way the Greeks translated, because they said they had not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And secondly, because... There's only one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And they did not rebaptize if they felt like that they, there had been a Christian baptism. And so the fact that Paul baptizes them indicates that he didn't believe that they were yet Christian. So this, one of the things that happens in revival is that there's a lot of salvations. Now, there's also, number two, in verse six, impartation. When Paul placed his hands on them, 
the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, two things is uh, debated in the church today. Number one is whether or not Christians can be demonized. Number two is uh, do you get everything at conversion or is there more? Uh, in the early church, remember me telling you about that church I went to was like in the first few hundred years of the history of the church and still had baptistry and stuff. Well, there's a, there's a, a, a document that's as old as, actually older than our oldest New Testament manuscripts that's in existence today. It's called the Apostolic Constitutions. It deals with the gifts of the Spirit and also deals with uh, the liturgy of the church, how they did their worship. And one of the things is that worship and theology should match. And so in the liturgy, the apostolic constitutions, they uh, had been re uh, coming uh, and being trained in the teaching of the church as catechumenists. And then they're going to be baptized as they surrender their life and confess their faith in Jesus and baptism. By, and, and, and some of them, they baptize in the name of the Father, baptize in the name of the Son, baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit in the Orthodox tradition. And uh, which the Orthodox and the Catholics were the same church until 1054 A.D. when they split. But anyway, and so then once they had been baptized, not before. See, here's the point I'm going to make. The prayer for deliverance was not prayed on this side of the baptistry before they go in for the unbeliever. The prayer for deliverance was prayed on this side when they come out, not before. See, they believed that people could be delivered, but then they got to be, they got to accept Jesus are going to be refilled. I mean, by the, it was seven times worse all. And so the ministry of deliverance was the ministry of, is the children's bread. There's only one place in the New Testament that talks about to whom is the ministry of deliverance for. And it's where the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus, asked Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter. And she's not a covenant child of God. She is a Gentile. That's why he called, they used the Gentiles, dogs for Gentiles. Euphemism, a dog. You're a dog. And he, not, and he said, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Now, in that context of interpreting Scripture, one of the things, it's got to be, what did, it, what did it mean at the time of the persons who first heard it? And that's just one of the principles of interpreting Scripture. Well, first of all, um, children's bread, he was saying, you're not a Jew. You're not a covenant child of God. Therefore, deliverance is not for you. That's our bread. Deliverance belongs to the people of God is a way of part of the process of sanctification. And she says, yes, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that falls at the master's table. And for that reason, he delivered her daughter. So the only place where it talks about the ministry of deliverance, for whom is it for? Jesus said, it's not right. Deliverance. He's talking about deliverance in context. It's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Today, we are part, we've been grafted into that covenant people of God, the church. Deliverance is, belongs to the Christians. It is to be a part of the process of sanctification. Um, 
the former dean at Regent Divinity School, uh, Vincent Sinan, I met with him once years ago, about 1995. And we were talking about this. And he said, uh, he was a Pentecostal holiness. In the Pentecostal movement, you got two kinds. Walter Hollenweiger, a German scholar, talked about the different kinds of Pentecostals. There's two-stage and three-stage Pentecostals. The two-stage Pentecostals are the assemblies of God. You're converted. Sanctification is a process. It's the, more the Calvinist, Baptistic view. And then you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So it's two stages. Con, uh, conversion, baptism, and the Spirit. But most of the early Pentecostals prior to the Assemblies of God were Wesleyan and, uh, instead of Calvinistic. And they're three-stage Pentecostals. You're converted. Then you have sanctification as a second definite work of grace. Then you are eligible for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So Simon was saying, I have read so many of the stories of people being sanctified in the holiness, holiness tradition. I believe what was happening when they said they were sanctified and they were able now to, to live and not fall into that sin. Uh, and usually it was a Wesleyan understanding of sin as a transgression of the law. And they didn't have the Calvinist understanding of falling short of the glory of God. It's was, it was a semantic way they interpreted how they could live free of sin. But anyway, he said, I believe they were being delivered. He said, Randy, that's what I really believe. I believe what they called sanctification. They had a deliverance experience and gave them freedom. 80% of the people in, in the Crusades in Argentina, the people who are being delivered are evangelicals. I mean, Carlos Anacondia told me that himself. And also Pablo Butari, who uh, trained for 12 years the people in the deliverance tents. Why would you cast a demon on somebody if they don't have Jesus in them? I did that once. I was in a crusade in India. This Muslim young guy, 25 years old, 10 years of headaches, came up to me and said, and the night before we'd seen about 100,000 people there the night before, and 50,000 of them got healed, and 30,000 accepted Jesus. The most I ever saw in my whole life in one, one time. And so this Muslim young man, he came up to me and said, will your God do for me, a Muslim, what he did for those Hindus last night? And I said, I think he will. What's your problem? He said, I've had migraines every waking moment for 10 years straight. I said, okay. So we started praying in the name of Jesus. And when I did, he, his head went back. His tongue started going out like this. His eyes rolled back. And his head started screaming like a banshee. Fell to the ground. I told one of the, because I couldn't, you know, I was going through a translator. I told one of the pastors there, cast it out. So he cast the demon out of the guy. He got up. No headache, excited, really excited. Just first time in 10 years he's not had this migraine headache. And he's just joy grinning from ear to ear. And I said, well, that's wonderful, but you really got a problem now. He said, problem? I don't have a problem. My headache's gone. I said, I know. We cast it out in the name of Jesus. That was a spirit that causes your headaches. You don't have Jesus in you. That thing is going to come back. And it will probably bring more with it. And you have no way to keep it out because you don't have Jesus in you. So here's your issue. You can stay a Muslim and get your migraines back. Or you can give your life to Jesus and now you have authority to cast it out. And, and the guy said, how do I accept Jesus? And it was, 
There really was no, there was, there was no big argument. There was no big <laughs> theological discussion. He just said, how do I accept Jesus? This guy's going to tell you, lead him to the Lord. And he did. So back to the point I was on, on impartation. This impartation happened. I'm not talking about deliverance now, just impartation. This being filled, the Spirit of God coming upon them was subsequent. Now, it wasn't very long, but it was subsequent. And this is the passage that evangelical theology cannot go around. There's no way you can get around this passage and say they got everything when they were saved. Because if they'd gotten everything when they were saved, there wouldn't be anything else to get. And so, so the, the, the evangelicals will say they, they weren't believers yet when they, Paul met them. They were disciples. I, I will grant that. That's true. But when Paul baptized them, now they're believers. But the Spirit didn't come upon them. There's a difference between coming in you. He comes in you for you. He comes in you for others. And it's not until Paul lays his hands on them. And he laid his hands on them because I believe that the early church believed in the doctrine of impartation, that those who had come to Christ need to be prayed for the laying on of hands. They didn't, I don't believe that the early church believed that only through the laying on of hands could one receive gifts of the Spirit. I don't believe that because it, 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 it's, but I believe that it's one of the two ways the early church believed it could happen. We, we put God in a box. We Westerners, influenced by Greek thinking, we like, every, we like our doctrine and our experiences tidy and nice, and we want to order salutis, the Latin words for order of salvation. Um, we, we've got it all figured out. And the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in much Protestant theology only deals with the, doc, the role of the Holy Spirit in relationship to salvation. Uh, salvation, sanctification, th that whole process but does nothing to understand the role of the Holy Spirit, the king, king, theology of the kingdom of God, advancing and continuing. There's no role of the Holy Spirit really spoken of in traditional evangelical theology that deals with the Holy Spirit's relationship to power and gifts, only in relationship to salvation, because that's the big issue of the Reformation was what do you have to do? How much do you have to pay to be saved, more or less? What's it take to be saved? It's all about the salvation experience was the big issue of the Reformation. So Reformational theology deals with the Holy Spirit in relationship to the salvation, conviction, faith, conversion, regeneration, sanctification, that process, but nothing about his role as the administrator of the gifts of the Spirit and, the, um, and power evangelism and, and the gospel of the kingdom. Now, so when he laid his hands on them, they received an impartation. And they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now, I am not a classical Pentecostal in theology. I do not believe that you have to speak in tongues to be baptized in the Holy Spirit for several reasons. Number one, uh, until the 20th century, you basically, um, well, at least for about a thousand years, there's not, you don't find a lot of it. But you see men and women who had so much power, they shook nations and advanced the kingdom. Um, uh, Patrick and, and Wesley and Whitfield and, and Finney and 
Moody and so many people and Praying Hyde and others, they, were, they, had, they, they, they had an experience they called being baptized in the Spirit. Very powerful post-conversion, all of them did, but they didn't speak in tongues. And so I can't believe that these great men and women of God who had, had to, to shook nations weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. Just that's, that's a historical problem I have. Uh, secondly, I have a problem with it because I spoke in tongues at 19 and I wasn't baptized in the Holy Spirit until I was 32. And I know lots of people that their experience was they had a tongues experience that wasn't the t- connected to their baptism in the Spirit. Um, I know others like uh, Francis McNutt in his book on healing it tells the same story out in camps farthest out with um, uh, I forgot her name now but anyway um, she wrote oh gosh Agnes Sanford she and this Methodist guy um, they're praying for Francis McNutt one of the early leaders of the Pentecostal charismatic movement Catholicism um, who's 90 years old uh, just, just this year um, but anyway, he starts praying and he starts speaking in tongues. They said, you've got it. You've got it. You've got it. He said, no, I don't. This is not that. <laughs> and it, a few days later, he is filled with the Holy Spirit, is baptized the Spirit. But it wasn't synonymous with when he spoke in tongues. Now, I call it cold tongues and hot tongues. That's my language. I've never read this anywhere. Just my own interpretation. What's the difference between cold tongues and hot tongues? Hot tongues is when you get your prayer language at the time you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. I have no problem with that. I celebrate it. I'm thankful for those who had that type of experience. I don't try to explain it away. I don't say it's not biblical. I don't, I'm not fearful of it. I, I, I cherish for them their experience. I just know that for me and for many other people I've talked to, um, I received my prayer language, but not at the time I was baptized in the Spirit. So it wasn't emotional. It wasn't this really powerful, shaking, crying experience. It's just I was an assistant pastor of a Baptist church, and I was in one of the Sunday school classes, doubled as a changing room for the baptistry. And I was in there, and I was praying, and I was just, you know, Using accolades for God, you're rose sharing a lily in the valley, bright morning star, and the alpha make the beginning and the end. And I said, You're the great shepherd of our souls, and I'm just going through that. And I got tongue tied and I said, what, what was that? I'd never heard tongues before in my life, so I had no pattern to go off of. Sometimes you know who people got baptized in the spirit under because their tongue sounds like that person's tongues. And, uh, but anyway, and that, and that, but anyway, so I, I wasn't even sure it was God. I thought, because I was thinking that, you know, that should have been real emotional, but there was no emotion tied to it. There's no weeping, no, no laughing, no crying. Just it happened. I, was, I didn't know what to think, and I opened up my Bible, and it just, I wasn't trying to find a text. I just opened up going to read some, and it opened up at 1 Corinthians where it said, Do not let this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those that are weak, which was an appropriate passage for a young assistant pastor in a Baptist church. <laughs> So I kept it a secret from 19 to 32 years old. So when Blaine Cook came to my church and all heaven broke loose and people started being powerfully touched, having to be driven home at night at midnight and, and, and uh, drunk and, and just, they started coming up to me. Key leaders of my church, Randy, got to talk to you. What about? <laughs> I spoke in tongues. <laughs> 
what are we going to do? And I said, come here. So do I. It's been my secret for a long time. Don't tell anybody. That's the way you have longevity in the Baptist church. The problem, the problem wasn't tongues. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of my key leaders that happened to them. But the problem wasn't tongues. The problem was this falling down stuff. You can't hide it. You could, we could hide the tongues, but we couldn't hide the falling down. You know, we, we couldn't hide the people having to be helped out of the meeting. As a matter of fact, when I, when I finally moved from my home in southern Illinois to go start my vineyard church in, in um, um, St. Louis area, my neighbors, some of the neighbors told me, said, well, uh, we thought you were a drug dealer. I said, why? Well, you had meetings. People would leave your home at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, and they came in looking normal. They, when, they, when they left, they were having to be helped through their cars, and they were, we, we thought you guys have just like was doing, doing drugs and stuff because you had all these cars would come and it'd be all for all around the house and all these young people coming in and, and leaving and it looked like they were inebriated or something or stoned or something happened. I said, oh my gosh, no, that was God. What do you mean? I said, well, Holy Spirit was on them. They couldn't walk because they were inundated by God. So it wasn't quite these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's more like these men are not, and women are not stoned as you suppose. <laughs> this is God. So, so whether we say, well, um, I, I was just thinking what happened in Russia and Ukraine. We talked about the order of salutus. You know, God convicts us. We hear the gospel. We come under conviction. He gives us the gift of faith. We repent and confess, believe. He, we're born of his spirit and sealed with his spirit. And, and then we can also then be touched by spirit and purified by spirit, whether it's an event or a process or both, sanctification and baptism of spirit. That's the order of salutus. The way it's supposed to work. But God is God. And God is sovereign. And God doesn't have to abide by any order of salutus. And several years ago, he really messed with me. Because I thought, I know how things ought to be. And, uh, and so, the Bible says by two witnesses, God will affirm or approve things. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, this two witness stuff. So, I'm talking to the wife of a leading apostle in Russia. And they oversee thousands of churches. And she was raised an atheistic Jew. Her dad was Jewish, but he was an atheist, a scientist. And he had no use for religion at all. And this was during a time when um, religion was pretty well illegal. And the Christians had to meet out in the woods and hidden places and all. She got curious. She wanted to go check it out. So she found out where the church Christians going to be meeting. And went there and was out in the woods. And it happened to be Pentecostals. And she's got around them. And, this, and they were, they were uh, worshiping in tongues. Singing in tongues. And she walked to this woman. And of course it was uh, Russian. She was speaking. And she said, what are you doing? 
And this woman said, oh, this is tongues. Wow. I want it because I, it makes me feel good. Just being around you, right? This is making me feel so good and so happy and peaceful. Wow. I want this. And she said, oh, no, you can't have this. You're not holy enough. Now, she didn't know she wasn't saved yet, but she thought definitely she wasn't holy enough. Well, the, the woman has not heard the gospel yet. She just got around Christian for the first time. They're speaking in tongues. It's making her feel good. And she wants it. She walks away, and within a minute, God overwhelms her, baptizes her in the Holy Spirit, and she starts speaking in tongues. When she's baptized in the Spirit, which proves I'm not anti-Pentecostal. Matter of fact, I, I, I'm more Pentecostal than most Pentecostals I know. <laughs> if Pentecostal is an experience, not just a doctrine. But I don't believe in a couple of cardinal points. I don't believe it always has to be subsequent. This, pr- this case proves the point. And I think there's one in the New Testament proves the point. It's, it's Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. As they're hearing the gospel by which they will be saved... All of a sudden, they start speaking in tongues, you know. And they, there's no, they didn't, they didn't come to the altar. They didn't raise their hand. They didn't sign a card. You know, they, they didn't do anything. They're just, they, they actually are listening to the gospel. And wham, God just saves them, sovereign. Wham, Holy Spirit just overwhelmed them. So anyway, so this woman said, I, did, I had not heard the gospel. But she had already been saved by God. And the moment she was saved, she started speaking in tongues. Or if you really want to push for subsequent, you want to be, have, we have a good relationship and you can identify a half a second after she was a believer, she had subsequently, subsequently <laughs> received her baptism of the Holy Spirit. I have no problem if we make subsequent, that short of subsequent, I have no problem with it then. So I thought that was weird. That is not the order salutis. So the next day I go to Ukraine and I go out to this place and this is the biggest uh, church outside the Orthodox Church in this city. And it's Pentecostal. And I meet the guy, and he tells me a story. The guy who started the church. He said, I didn't know anything about Christianity. I just got curious. And I heard that the church was going to be gathered down this street because there's no building big enough to put them in. And they, and, and they didn't have a building, actually, at the time. Uh, and they were going to be meeting in this street. So I thought, I'm going to check out who these, what these Christians are. So he's there, and all they're doing is worshiping. Again, it's, it's no preaching. It's just worship. He said, I walked into my studying it out well, this is I don't know they look kind of normal and stuff and then all of a sudden he starts speaking in tongues well somebody recognizes him and they think he's a KGB plant so they take him to the leader and the leader uh, starts talking to him he said well, uh, how long have you been able to do that he was speaking in tongues he said five minutes <laughs> he said well when did you become a Christian he said oh I'm not one well when did you repent he said, I don't want that word means well, did you confess your sins? What are sins? He knows nothing about the gospel, but God has already saved him. If you believe that's possible. It's not the order of salutis and not the normal way God does it. But if we allow God to be sovereign, God can do anything he wants. And this guy was saved and started, I don't know if it's, again, it's a quarter of a second after he believed or whatever, but... That's not the normal way. So what, but the, the Pentecostal pastor had a real lot of wisdom, a whole lot of wisdom. So then he said, he realized they needed to catch me up. So he explained to me the gospel, and he pulled out this list. Of, and it was Pentecostal, and in Russian, Pentecostal was very legalistic. And so were the, Baptist, so were the Baptist, Russian Baptist. 
they're very legalistic too. And they used to be one group for a long time, the Baptist Pentecostal group under Soviet power. And so he got this really long list of sins. And he said, and he had me confess every one of them. He said, I hadn't done a lot of them. But he, he wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. So, I, you know, and I'm thinking, this is supposed to be good news? <laughs> and uh, he said, then after I did that, and he said, now, you know what this means? He's, I said, no. He says, this means that the God that created the universe has come to live inside of you. And he said, now that was exciting. <laughs> that really excited me. So I went home. I gathered my family, my extended family, and all my neighbors together. I said, come in here. And I told them what happened to me. I said, watch this. He said, you know what that means? That means God that created the universe lives in me. And he'd like to live in you. Now, the guy's one day old in the Lord, not even, a, you know, he leads them all to the Lord. He had the largest church of couple thousand members that's how he came to the lord that's not the normal way all uh, the only point of that story did you hear that? my wife the point of that story is this don't put god in your pentecostal system or your baptist system or your evangelical system or your holiness system god is bigger than all these systems and we don't always have to have the same type of experience which means my experience doesn't have to be like yours and yours doesn't have to be like mine for it to be valid and for us not to feel like some way you're falling short or we're somehow missing because we're not it's not the normal way god is god the big thing is just know that you're getting everything that's available. You find out something's more available, you want it. Matter of fact, my, my book, There's More. I prayed for this guy. He was one of our, our, later he became one of the Randy Clark scholars at the seminary where I'm at. We have 60 some odd, 63 people going, working on a doctor's degree or just completed it in the last couple of years. Anyway, um, so he's, he came to my church. I mean, my headquarters. I don't have a church anymore, but my headquarters. And uh, we were doing a meeting. His wife has had fourth-stage cancer. He's Nazarene. And Nazarenes are holiness people. They traditionally believe in a second definite work of grace called sanctification. But they usually don't, are not very open to tongues. Um, so I prayed for his wife. She ended up, she did get healed of fourth-stage cancer. And I prophesied to him, God's going to use you to redig the well of healing in the Nazarene denomination. And he had a little church. Well, God came on him so, and he got empowered. So he, he read my book, There's More. And then he took it. Oh, and, and he said, Randy, we're seeing things we've not seen in 100 years in our meetings now in the Nazarene church. People falling out, can't, can't drive home, having to be driven home. People stuck to the floor. Things we have not seen. It's in our history. It's in our Nazarene holiness history in the early 1900s, we, we, but we're not, we haven't seen these things in 100 years. And he said, I took your book and I gave it to the, uh, the older version. We cut 90,000 words. The present version, had, it's got 70,000 words. They, they, they want to cut 20,000 words out of it. So, but his original version. He said, I give it to this guy. He read it. And he's an evangelist named Dan Bohai. He got so excited. 
He said, oh my gosh, there's more than a second definite work of grace. You can have a third and a fourth and a fifth. He said the realization that there was a possibility of more created hunger. He has experienced so much. He's led scores of thousands of people since then into being filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized spirit, whatever you want to call it, sanctified, whatever you want to call it. And, and he has seen thousands of healings, so much more than he had ever seen. He's read your book five times now. Every time he just comes away even more encouraged. When he realized there was more, he wanted it. And this is one of the things. Sometimes our doctrine causes us to be satisfied because we think we've got all there is until we get to heaven. Now all thing left to do is come to church, give your tithe, and try to be good. The only problem, Wimber used to say, the only problem with trying to be good is it gets boring and People fall into sin because there's nothing to do but try to be good. And it's usually negative holiness. Don't do this, that, and the other. What we need is positive holiness, which keeps us busy, keeps us active, gives us something to do. We just don't have to sit on a pew. A lot of churches, though, because of a misplaced comma in the King James Version, have a theology we pay you to do the ministry because they read Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. When Jesus ascended, he gave gifts to the church, son to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. To equip the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma. So the comma between equip the saints and the work of the ministry meant that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, the ministry is their domain. They do the ministry. They equip the saints and they do the ministry. And the equipment of the saints deals with moral purification, moral issues, not power issues. But that misplaced comma, the ministry doesn't belong to the laity. The ministry belongs to the five-fold offices. That comma is not in any of the modern translations because we realize that the, the fivefold office is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So impartation is part of equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. I have a book. It's called uh, The Healing River and Its Contributing Streams. Uh, the stream I was in, in, the third wave stream of the Venus stream, is one of the streams. Word of faith is a stream. Classical Pentecostal healing is a stream. Sacramental healing is a stream. Um, the evangelical view is a stream. Not a really big stream, not too deep of a stream. But I try to say, what is it in all these streams? And the early church, apostolic age, what was their view of healing and discipleship and how did that affect the liturgy of the church? Because the liturgy of your church, the order of service, even if you have no order of service printed out, God forbid we have an order of service printed out, you know, but we have one anyway. Just try and change it. See how many people get upset. Yeah, this is it. And what you'll find is that most of us think our stream is the river. 
And we think if you're in one of those other streams, you're up a foul-smelling tributary without any visible means of propulsion. Because <laughs> we really think we're the river. The others are polluted backwashes. Truth is, there's truth in every one of those streams. And all the streams come together to make a great river of healing. And there will be times that you need a truth that's in another stream to get what you need because that's the truth that's missing in your own stream. So I've tried not to cut down. I've tried to build bridges instead of walls in this. And, uh, but I do talk about if you have a theology a certain way, how will that affect uh, discipleship within your church and worship, the worship service within? Because... If your theology is really strong, you believe these things, then you will make a place for it in the worship service. What you believe, if you believe it can be normative rather than very rare, then you, your service is different. Anyway, so now let's, I need to go on because I've got 20 minutes to finish the next five points. Teaching on the kingdom of God in, in uh, verse 8. I've, I've skipped uh, verse 7 on purpose. Come back to it later. Um, or one of the verses I'll get to. Uh, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. John the Baptist's message was message of the kingdom. Jesus' message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Paul preached about the kingdom. Here, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. We lost the message of the kingdom and we took our gospel and we, we talk about a full gospel. A full gospel is not adding tongues to forgiveness. Full gospel is not just being open to healing. The full gospel, the fullness of the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. And when we move from the gospel of the kingdom to the gospel of forgiveness, we... we truncate, we reduce, we, the, we uh, uh, minimize the gospel of the kingdom, which was more than just forgiveness of sin so you can go to heaven. It was the kingdom. It, it's not, see, the emphasis can be what do you need to do to get to heaven is one gospel. Another part of the gospel, I'm going to say different gospels because they're both gospels, it's just the fullness of it, is not only that, but now what do we need to do for heaven to come to us? The power of heaven. The power of the kingdom. The good news is the good news of the kingdom. Change the way you're thinking because the kingdom is now near. The laws of the kingdom trump the laws of nature. So therefore, there's now nothing that is impossible. All things become possible because of the kingdom. And it's this message of the kingdom that is so important. And it was lost. And there was a Baptist guy, George Ellen Ladd, that helped discover once again the message of the kingdom. That the kingdom is both now and not yet. It won't be consummated. Not everybody's going to be healed every time until Jesus comes back and everybody in Christ then will be healed. But until then, and it's consummated, it's a, every time somebody gets healed, it's a sign pointing to that day. We don't worship the sign but it was a reality of a power that's made available. The message of the kingdom is a message that needs to be fully embraced because the message of the kingdom 
requires the power gifts for the kingdom to be manifested. Paul said he had fully preached the, the gospel when he had, by what I've said and done, by the power of signs and wonders. In, um, in Romans chapter 15, he said, um, verse, beginning in verse 17, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in, the leading, in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Lycrim, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Fully proclaiming the gospel of Christ is not just by what we say. It's what's by said and done by the power, signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, It is, where there's revival and no teaching, it will get off. The Welsh revival was a revival of worship and singing testimony. It was wonderful. And it was God. But a little, but it wasn't all that needed to be there. Toronto was a move where people were hungry for the presence of God. It was, it was, again, much like Welsh revival, presence of God. People wanting to receive, experience, be renewed by the presence of God. And some preaching was quite inferior to other preaching. Sometimes, there were times that I was gone, John was gone, uh, and, 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 and had a lot of people coming through. Not everybody was the same caliber of a preacher. One of the criticisms was it wasn't, sometimes the preaching was weak. Well, they didn't come for the preaching. But there needs to be preaching. There needs to be preaching the kingdom. And there needs to be good, good uh, theology. And I'm, I'm, which one of the reasons I went back to school, I'm convinced that there's too much bad teaching in the charismatic movement that causes people to fall off into excess. And the place of unity and the place of unity between charismatics, Pentecostals and Catholics and evangelicals and all is going to be the word of God itself, rightly interpreted without certain glasses that are not actually part of the understanding the first century worldview. So my hope is as we come together on the basis of commitment to Scripture and to experience of what the Scripture teaches, we can come into greater unity. I'm chasing a lot of rabbits, but I believe there's not only a unity of doctrine, there's a unity of spirit. You can talk to somebody and it don't take you very long to find out you can tell Jesus is in them, they love him, he loves them, and you feel kindred spirit, and they may be from a different, quite a different denomination. And yet you can honor and respect each other. Even though you may not agree on all points of doctrine, you're in agreement that you're my brother, you're my sister because of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see in, in the New Testament. It's what the Holy Spirit was showing people caused them 
to accept groups they wouldn't accept before. Matter of fact, I was taught in the Baptist seminary that the reason why the Holy Spirit was poured out and they speaking in tongues, all these manifestations, was that the, the, the Jews who were very prejudiced, first Jews, thought you'd have to be a Jew to be Christian. Then they discovered, well, no, Samaria's half Jews. And then Acts 10 is God fears. They were Gentiles who had joined the synagogue, but they weren't full Jews because they had not been circumcised. But they believed in the God of the Jews and the Jewish law, and they were part of, I mean, they'd joined to as much as they could. That's God fears. Then the next final stage is just total pagan Gentiles. We don't see these types of phenomena, phenomena again uh, until beginning of the 20th century of Pentecostalism was so rejected by the church and then in the 60s um, you have the charismatic movement and the charismatic movement was really important for this reason I was raised Baptist I thought all Lutherans were going to hell I thought all Catholics were going to hell I thought I thought Methodists really weren't they had they were Christians but they didn't have really have churches because their order the way they did church wasn't right. I, you know, I was, I was trained to think this way. I wasn't as strong as the landmark Baptist. That if you even went to another Baptist denomination, they'd have to rebaptize you when you came back, you know, and close communion just to their own people and all. Um, and the Catholics thought all Protestants were going to hell too. And all of a sudden, God is starting to pour out his Holy Spirit. And Dennis Bennett, Episcopalian, is on television, on the news, and in the magazines because these Episcopalians are speaking in tongues. When I started college in 1970, many of my Pentecostal friends did not believe the, the charismatic movement was really God. And the reason why they couldn't believe it was really God was because how can you be how can you be truly born again, speaking in tongues, filled and baptized the Holy Spirit, and be a beer-drinking Lutheran? Or a wine-drinking Episcopalian? Or a whiskey-drinking Presbyterian? Anglican? You know, this just blew their minds. How can this be? And it really did, at first, was rejected. But we begin to see that there are people that really can be quite different from us, especially in our how big and what's on our list from different, and yet God is on them. And it was meant to be, as it was in the first century, a sign of how inclusive God is in his church of people that we didn't think of other denominations were even saved. And I'm not saying everybody in a denomination is saved. I don't believe that at all. <laughs> Any denomination. But I believe that there's people who truly know God and love God in lots of denominations that um, would be different from us. And God wants us to get along. How many of you are parents? Isn't it one of your worst feelings when you hear your own children cutting their siblings down? Doesn't that bother you? Doesn't it grieve you in your heart when you hear a brother cut his sister down or a brother, a brother, a sister, a brother? Doesn't that hurt you? 
It does me. I hated it when my kids. You don't understand the power of your words to hurt each other. I don't think I have to draw the conclusion. You can draw the application. All right. Got to get going. Power and deliverance. He, power. Um, verse 11 and 12. God did extraordinary miracles. Now, miracles much more than a healing. Healing is the speeding up of a natural process of healing. Miracle is when something's there, it shouldn't be there, and it disappears. Something's not there that needs to be there, and God creates it. And we had a guy get his optic nerve connected to the back of his eye. It, it wasn't connected. never had been connected. I don't know. He went, started seeing wirelessly or God connected. I don't know. And we had a woman in Reading. She had no eardrum or any of the bones in the ear totally that you need to hear. She got healed. That's a creative miracle. Had a guy in Odessa, Ukraine, young guy, 14, uh, no auditory nerve. Two doctors confirmed no auditory nerve. He gets his hearing. Those are miracles. Now, Making a distinction between a healing and a miracle, my goodness, when you get the edge, extraordinary miracle. What's an extraordinary miracle? That's amazing. This is where Paul had extraordinary miracles. And by the way, this is seen to be the biggest church he ever established. He believed that by the time Timothy took over, some church growth uh, scholars believe that the church could have been 50,000 by then. Um, though you won't find it in the scripture that's just their opinions um, but anyway extraordinary miracles even handkerchiefs and aprons taken from him uh, was, would heal the sick and drive out demons uh, this is an amazing thing now one of the things I did put in your outline because it's not an attribute of revival but it's just a, an aside another point though is that revival is based on the power of God not methods formulas and programs many times god has had to wait on the national council of churches to get done with its program or certain denominations to get done with their program get done with their evangelistic program before he could grant them revival and that's verses 13 through 16 some jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the lord jesus over those who were demon possessed by the word demon possessed is in addition it's not in it's not in the greek there's this whole thing, demon says, demon oppressed. It's, it's not in the Greek. It's just one word, demonized, if you transliterated it. Various degrees of full-on demonization, which I do not believe a Christian can be possessed fully because we belong to Jesus Christ. He's bought us. He's purchased us. We're his possession. I do believe we can be various levels of demonization from a little bit. It's like kind of like a CD. It's got one gouge on it. It's got one little place of dirt on it. Everything works fine. Get to that one spot. The light of the laser hits it, hangs up. Everything else works fine. That, what you could say, that thing is demonized. Or you can have a scratch all the way across it and nothing plays right. And it put it in the back seat in the sun and uh, it's, it's just warped. It won't even go into the machine. The same word, it's demonized. But it doesn't make a distinction to, to what degree. And it can be any version between. Except I do not believe Christians can be full on control. As a matter of fact, the most demonized person in the Bible, all the demons in him, a whole legion of them, can't keep him from coming and bowing at Jesus' feet. I also think Jesus wasn't talking to them. He was talking to the man and they answered. Anyway, 
So the Jews went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke on this name of Jesus. Okay. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, Jewish, uh, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. Jesus, I know. I know about Paul. But who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, all seven of them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out in the, of the house naked and bleeding. Now, when we come to verse 17, it says, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they all were seized with fear. I'm going to stop there. What became known? This one incident or the miraculous the extraordinary miracles, including the failure of the sons of Sceva and this whole deliverance story in addition to the miracles and healing. I believe it goes back to all these things. When this became known, then it says they, they were seized with fear. That's one of the things I was talking about. And then it says, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Respect. This fear I was talking about causes people to respect the name of Jesus. There's not enough respect for his name anymore. I believe we should want revival so that the name of Jesus would be held in high honor. It's, it's the most pure motive I can think of. Everything else has got a little taint of selfishness so that people get saved, yes, but I'm more excited when my family gets saved than yours. <laughs> the church would grow, yes, but I'm more excited when my church grows than yours. I'm excited for you, but I'm more excited when it's mine. There's still always a little bit of selfishness until we get to this thing, that the name of Jesus would be held in high honor. It's the highest motivation. That's why we should want to see a New Testament revival like this that the name of Jesus would be held in high honor. Now, it's interesting, verse 18 and 19, the revival's going on. People have been saved. There's miracles taking place. And now this deliverance thing happens. And fears come, the name of Jesus held in high honor, and it says, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Do you know that there can be people in the church that still needs forgiveness of stuff they're doing? Do you know that there can be people in the church who are saved that needs a whole lot of consecration and sanctification? Do you know that one of the great things that needs to happen for people and even their own witness to get victory over sin? Because one of the reasons why a lot of people don't testify is because the people they work with know them best and have seen them in their worst. And because they've been defeated in many ways, they have so much shame, they don't talk about their faith. But when people really begin to get free, when they really begin to get healthy, when the discipleship is breaking free as it was in Wesley's day and in Luke Abe Huber's day today in Brazil, they just start talking and start witnessing because they're free. They're not shamed. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Drachmas was a day's wage. 50,000 days of wages. That's a lot of witchcraft stuff. And where did it come from? It wasn't coming from outside the church. It's coming from people inside the church. 
See, when revival hits a church, before it really, really goes and touches the lost in the community, it starts with the church. There is, there's people begin to come out of the closet, so to speak, of their hidden sins and begin to confess, begin to renounce, begin to break because they're aware that the power of God is here to do something. That is so important for revival. Revival starts at the church. Once it started at the church, it then spreads to the community. Now, our last uh, point was growth. In verse 20, it says, In this way, the word, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in number. Now, this word of the Lord spreading is one is a Luke's way of saying the church was growing, people were getting saved, word of the Lord was spreading. A lot of salvations are taking place. In verse 10, which I'd skipped, it says, um, this went on for two years. So that, this is really important, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, modern-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord. Now, they don't have any cell phones. They don't have any TVs. They don't have any radios. They don't have any newspapers. They don't have any of these modern means of communication. And yet, in two years, this revival is so powerful that every Jew and every Gentile, every Greek, which means everybody in Asia, heard the word. That is an explosive word-of-mouth revival. This is what we need. This is what we should be after. Nothing, anything short of this can be good, but it's not the best. You got good, better, and best. I'm holding this up. This is best. This is best. And there are places in the world today where things like this are happening. And it needs to happen in our own country. But sometimes if people know almost nothing about revival, they can't be hungry for something they don't know anything about. There's a need of knowing what God has done in order that we can begin to cry out, God, I've heard your report. In the midst of the years, revive your work again. Oh, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. And some of the things that we have, I'm, I'm a little leery of. Not that I think they're wrong, but I, I think if we make a formula, method, program out of them, even good things, it can actually hurt our faith to expect a revival. Case in point, I believe the place of commanded blessing is where brethren are in agreement. I believe when churches come together and you get more churches in the city coming together, it's good. But if we begin to think we can't have revival until that happens, and it looks like it's look, we're, that's never going to happen, it actually hurts our expectation for revival. So we need to know, yes, there are times like in, uh, what's the name uh, in Argentina North? Rosario, no. Where uh, uh, Ed Savosa went and did the big meeting um, in northern Argentina. I've been there, actually. Uh, but anyway, that was wonderful. But the revival on the Isle of Lewis in the Hebrides in 1949, 
started with two sisters, one 82 and the other about 78 years old, who together, they got the breakthrough. And, uh, and, and this is one of the other teachings I have. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I don't think I'll do it uh, this week, maybe. But, um, you know, we talk about, we all understand the relationship between prayer and revival. That's very much established. Well, I want to find out what, is there anything that causes that kind of prayer to happen? And I think there is. I actually think that one of the things that sustains a belief in praying for revival to come is the role of prophecy that God has spoken prophetic words over a city or to a person they've heard from the Lord that hearing from the Lord that prophetic revelation is what causes this faith to be so strong and confident there's a difference between just spending a lot of time in prayer and spending time in prayer of faith Finney, in his lectures on revival, under his autobiography, he talks about going to places. They said, we've been praying for revival for six years. And he said, do you want us to pray? No, if you guys have been praying for revival for six years and you haven't got it, you're, you're, you're not, you don't know how to pray. Or, you know, I don't want those prayers. And he, and he said, we can, we can pray and have revival. Now, I have to admit, though, in fairness to those people, Finney knew he was living in the day of revival. He knew he was living in the day of the outpour of God. And in that day that you realize you're living in it, you literally do have a gift of, uh, or a level of measure of faith to believe that if we do this, God is going to do that because you know you're living in that, season, that time of visitation. Here's something we in America need to know. Around the world, we're living in the time of the visitation. And it's not the will of God that we would be left out. So, seven characteristics, attributes, or signs of New Testament revival. Salvation, impartation, teaching about the kingdom of God. It's not methods. It's not one of them. This is a side. Not methods, programs. It's not our being able to do it ourselves, our systems. Power, especially healing, power evangelism, miracles, deep conviction, re repentance, fear, respect for the name of Jesus, deeper repentance on the part of the church, and growth. That everybody in the whole province heard in two years the word of the Lord and in this way the word of the Lord multiplied and grew something's wrong when the city that has the highest per capita of Christians has the same crime levels as any other city there's a there's there's a difference between the 8th century prophets and the New Testament church the 8th century prophets were saying, the, the false prophets were saying, everything is good. Our church attendance is high. Our ties are up. Look at our wonderful buildings. And the true prophets said, these people worship me with their lips, 
but their hearts are far from me. What we need is not be satisfied with the outward until we see the fire from heaven falling. Salvation is not just transference of growth. Different quality of life between those who name the name of Jesus and those that don't. The divorce rates really are different between the church and the ones that's outside. That our faith is affecting our lifestyles. Not in a sense of becoming legalistic. Not in a sense of, oh, we don't go to movies and don't dance and, you know, don't do this and don't do that. But in a sense of our checkbooks and our calendars reveal the way we use our time that we are passionate about his kingdom and about seeing people saved, delivered, sanctified, set free, and becoming disciples who are healthy, who out of their excitement lead their friends and family to the Lord. That's what we need. Anything short of this can be good, but it won't be best. So that's it.